The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi David Eliezri now presents his lecture, Judaism and Free Speech. So today we're going to talk about Judaism and free speech, which is a little bit of a difficult subject because the perspective we see in American law is not exactly the same perspective that we see in Jewish law. It's a little bit of a different kind of perspective. You have two different approaches with two different systems, and it's become a much more highlighted issue in America right now because of what we call cancel culture, where if you say the wrong thing, you can lose your job, you can lose your parnasa, you can lose... You can lose everything if you smile in the wrong direction, say the wrong thing, etc., etc. If you happen to live in where I do in California, which is more woke, it becomes more difficult. You've got to be more careful. And it's also scary because a lot of people are self-censoring themselves. They're afraid to share what they really think, which is very dangerous because if we don't have freedom of speech in America, something terrible could really happen. And uh, we have here two systems, two different systems that approach the, the whole issue in a very... Different, a different kind of way, and um, we also, if you look into it, we have in the, in the, we all know in the Constitution of the United States, we have in the Bill of Rights, we have the First Amendment, which is freedom of speech, and which is par- very important because we have to be able to challenge people. Ten years ago, Jimmy Carter was on a local radio station, the local NPR outlet in California, and they were taking calls, so I called them up. And as you can imagine, of all the people I voted for president, he was exactly not on the top of my list. Nevertheless, I said, Mr. President, you have to treat a person with respect. And I asked him a hard question. And that's what we can do in a democracy, Baruch Hashem. That's the beauty of a democracy. We can challenge people in power and we can ask them questions. Again, it needs to be done with dignity. And I think it's very important that we, in a democracy, you know, a lot of times I hear people talk about, about politicians, especially from the other side of the aisle, whatever side of the aisle they may be, and they have all these you know, derogatory things to say about them, but they never met them, they never saw them, they never spoke to them, and they don't really know what their motives are. And I think it's important that when we speak about other people, we need to do it with a sense of respect, in particular those people we don't agree with. And we may be surprised to learn sometimes that somebody that we don't agree with at all, we might have a very interesting sense of respect. A couple of years, about four years ago, three and a half, four years ago, before, about a, six months, I think, before COVID, I was invited to a meeting in New York with three, four other, about four other rabbis from other ends of the religious spectrum, with to who today is the Prime Minister of Israel, Yair Lapid. And to be honest, I, don't, I would not vote for Yair Lapid. I have a lot of things I disagree with him. And especially when it comes to issue of religious issues, he's had a, he's had a political agenda, which in my opinion was somewhat hostile to traditional Judaism. So I sat and talked to them for an hour and a half, together with another couple of rabbis from, let's say, that weren't not of the same mindset I am. It was a very engaging conversation. I gave them a rough time. It gave them a little bit of a rough time. But at the end of the conversation, I came out that, you know what, I never vote for this guy, but he is not hostile. Rather, he has a point of view. He's not malicious toward traditional Jews. He just said he's not like his father, Tommy, who was very different, if you know the history of Israeli politics. And I learned a powerful lesson from that, that you need, you can disagree with a person politically and you can respect them as an individual. And I think that that's something very important that we need to have here in the United States when it comes to this issue of free speech. So we're going to look here 
about, about free speech. We know that we have this idea in Judaism, in, in American constitution, but there is no Jewish parallel to the First Amendment, and there really is, is nothing like that at all. And it's very, very different. What we see in America, it's very important. So what I want to try to do, I don't know if it's going to be logistically possible. You have the mic right there. If you can read to us reading number one, my friend. Uh, we're going to read reading number one, which is a very important. Uh, we're going to read reading number one, which is actually from the Constitution of the United States. Yeah, read. Constitution uh, shall make no law respecting an uh, an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peace, peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievance. So here we have in the Constitution of the United States embedded this idea of freedom of speech, which is foundational in our country. We have a Bill of Rights in the United States, which is very, very important. And it goes on further, and in reading number two, it tells us, it brings us from the words of James Madison, which is that free speech is one of the bul great bulwarks of liberty, unalienable, indefensible, right to reform or change the U.S. government, wherever it shall be found, adverse or inadequate, the purpose of institution. In other words, this is what James Madison, one of the founders and one of the early presidents of the United States, said, that this idea is really foundational to the United States. And... Um, and it's really, very it's really very important to give freedom of speech. Now, what is this idea that there's a marketplace of thinkers and, 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 uh, and, and what the Constitution is doing is protecting that free flow of ideas from different people? Why? Because in this country, what did they fear? They feared monarchists. They feared fascists. They feared totalitarian regimes that all of the people, the founding fathers of the United States, had experienced when they had come from Europe where you couldn't really express yourself. And by the way, just so you, people don't even think about it, that till the onset of World War I, democracy was not necessarily prevalent in many countries in Europe. After World War I is when, the thing cha when much, much changed. But nevertheless, people that came over here in the 1500s, the 1600s, 1700s, even before the greater immigrations later, they had suffered in these monarchies where they had no freedom and independence. And so the founding fathers, and we felt this is a very important. And we see in United States history, we have many dissenting voices that were important, like Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and others, who really, they, they gave, their free speech was transformational to the American political process. One could argue that if it wasn't for Abraham Lincoln, maybe slavery would still be in the United States. And one could argue, if it wasn't for the eloquence of Martin Luther King, maybe discrimination that existed in this country till the 1960s in an institutional format would still be here. So freedom of speech is a very powerful idea and something that's very important here in American society. But we have a problem, which is that, let me, maybe you, maybe you can hand the mic to the lady. You want to read the next? Read to us reading number three, which is about how Judaism looks at freedom of speech. There is no naked right to free speech in Jewish law. The reason for this glaring omission is not that Jewish law does not value speech or that Jewish law does not protect and recognize the social benefits of the free exchange of ideas. On the contrary, Jewish law is characterized by debate, Talmudic logic, and the delicate balance between the sound majority and the perceptive minority. Each tractate of the Talmud is arranged as a manuscript of arguments 
between rabbis of various academies debating a myriad of subjects in Jewish law and theology. The Talmudic legal system is at least as staunchly supportive of the notion of a marketplace of ideas as the American system. But there is one thing. There's no naked right to free speech in the Jewish legal system. In Judaism, there is no, there is no uh, document that says we support free speech. The Talmudic system supports the idea of free speech, but also there is a worry about speech being dangerous. So we have no way embodied here in Judaism this idea of free speech. There is, because in Judaism, there is no duties, there is no rights, there is only responsibilities. It's a very different kind of legal concept, but at the same time, everybody knows about Jews, everybody has an opinion. In fact, you just go to Israel, get in the taxi driver, he'll be driving you and he'll tell you that he was in preschool with Bibi Netanyahu or this, this politician, that politician, if he hadn't beaten them up in preschool, he'd today be the Prime Minister of Israel. And then he'll tell you exactly what has to be happening in the country and he'll tell you how to run the country and you can learn more. I mean, I was in Israel a few weeks ago and I learned Dvar Torahs from taxi drivers, the Parsha Torah portion of the week for the taxi drivers. One guy wanted to know what volume of Talmud I'm learning this week. It was like, it was like, an, it was like an experience. You wouldn't believe, you know, you're studying Torah every time you get into a taxi in Yerushalayim. So we see on one level, there is a very kind of culture of debate. But on the, seventh, on the second level, what we don't see is we don't see any absolute right for free speech. But there is a very other interesting concept. If you go into Kabbalistic teachings, we have a very interesting teaching. First thing it says, and God said, let there be light, which is a very powerful idea which is how is the world created? The expression in Torah is with use God speaking. God speaking is, is, is a metaphor for the spiritual energy that comes in this world and creates the world. But how is human, how is life divided in the, term, the terminology of Kabbalah? It's divided into doimem, tzomeach, chayim, Four kinds of different levels of existence. There's dormant things, there is growing things, there's living things. And then when it comes to the human being, so dormant is ground and dirt, et cetera, et cetera. The golf course behind us is like four golf course. If it wasn't so humid, you could go play golf if you wanted. So there's, but that's, the, and then you, ha, then you have things that grow, which is the grass. And, the, and then you have living things, animals. Then you have man. And how is human beings, uh, what's the word conferred on human beings in the words of Kabbalah? A medaber, a communicator. The essence of what makes us unique as people is we speak one person to another. And what does it say? It says a classic line in Tanya that the words have power to be a vessel for ideas and to be a creative force in the world. In other words, words can form the world. God uses yehi or, let there be light. Yehi this, let there be this. Yehi that, let there be that. All different kinds of words are used to define the whole story of creation. And we, as human beings, are called speakers communicators, people who interact with somebody else different than themselves. And you know, one of, the, one of the most important places to come in this retreat is the tea room, not for the coffee and the cake, but for the communication, the schmoozing, the he, you're here, you're here for a couple of days, oh, that session, I don't want to go to that session, I do want to go to, but there's a session in the lobby. You know, the, a lot of times it's the, you go to a conference, the most important session is going on in the lobby. Why? Because people are talking and people are communicating. 
And that is a very important idea, and, 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 and it's, it's vibrant and dynamic. So what we're going to begin to do now is we're going to parse a little bit the differences between the American concept of speech, the Jewish concept of speech. We're going to look at a few case studies about speech, and then we're going to look about how Judaism teaches how speech could go on a, on a higher level. So Je could you hand the, the mic to the person in front of you? Jeff, can you read to us? Poor guy, he comes to my shul and he comes to my speech. He comes here, he could go someplace else. <laughs> anyway, so from our community, so read, reading number four. Both American and Jewish law recognize that words are powerful and can accomplish social reform or further a political agenda. The difference between the two philosophies is that Jewish law is more willing to make the tough decisions about what is valuable speech and what is disrespectful. Americans' law, most importantly goal, most important goal concerning speech is to protect the ability of the minority opinion to be heard in the marketplace of ideas, even if expressing those views may be hurtful or offensive to some, not anymore. Tomatic law, most important goal in speech law, is to fulfill the will of God. Thus the Talmud sees no problem protecting the core ideas of Judaism from disrespectful criticism. Preserving the decorum of the marketplace, as it were, even at the expense of certain views being excluded. So what happens is when these, when these, when these attempts, when these goals diverge, so therefore the approach to, to speaking diverges. And we see a difference. There's a time in Judaism where speech can be limited in the context of Jewish law, and there's also a moral teaching about how speech should be. So we see there's a very, very difference. And it comes down to something very, very central, which is, which is how, do we see, how do we see the whole idea here of speech? So, so, so we see that, that sense of divergence. So American law, let's get to the foundation. What does American law espouse? Democracy. In other words, and Jewish law espouses something else, a theocracy. Jewish law is basically a system of theocracy. It's not about culture, it's not about music, it's about accepting upon ourselves the yoke of heaven and accepting ourselves the dictates of Torah. So therefore, it's a, it's a very different system. How did the Constitution come about? How does any law come about? through the vote of the electorate in the country, hopefully, that's how laws should be passed, and the people get together and they vote what they want to have in the United States, and that's why we have diversity in the United States. If you go to California, the laws, especially that we know in COVID, the experience, Florida was a lot different experience for those of us who happen to live in California. Vey, if you didn't wear a mask in California. In Florida, they celebrated the fact you didn't wear a mask. There was a whole different kind of political philosophy. And the point is, the people of Florida chose, chose their governor, the people of California chose their governor, and each one had a different response because that was the will of the majority of the people. That's, by the way, so many people are leaving California, moving to Florida. But, but seriously speaking, seriously speaking, on New York, it's half in New York. I got off the plane yesterday. You walk through, you think you're in Brooklyn already. So that's in the airports. I didn't even get to Miami Beach. I was in the airport. I thought I could make a minion at every, almost at every, every gate. You know, it was a wild going on over there. So, uh, so t and, and, and so 
it, so that's how American law is like that. Now, what is, the, what is the Jewish law? It's rooted in a set of laws given by God and supplemented by the decrees of Jewish courts. And American law protects, this is the key issue. American law protects rights and Jewish law gives us duties or another word would be responsibilities. And this is a fundamental different system in how it works. So in American law, what, how does the Constitution of the United States begin? How does the Bill of Rights begin? The words, we the people. Not re, we the representatives, not we the government. It's we the people. It's a social contract between the society and the government. And that's what's so unique about the American. Because American, America is a country different than every other. Every other was a country set of certain people. Here it was a, com a, a group of people that came together with a common idea. And this is what's so remarkable about the American experience. And we see it in other countries where it's not so. so. And we, where we, people do not have the same level of protection of rights because the concept of we the people is not so much embedded in, in, in the society. I mean, I have a, two kids that live in Australia. I was just speaking to Rabbi Label Wolf, who's a wonderful speaker, who's here for the retreat, about the different response to COVID in Australia. In Australia, protest was put down because there's no Bill of Rights. Here in America, if you didn't agree, you could still protest. That, and because we have that idea embedded in our country of we the people. But in Australia, which is a more, it's, it's an outgrowth of the monarchy, and there's not embedded in the mentality, and even though, let me just tell you, Australia is a wonderful Jewish community. It is the most successful Jewish community and a democracy in the world. And I'm excluding South Africa because Jews in South Africa can't assimilate to the host culture. It's a, it's a remarkable success story, especially the Jewish community in, South, in Australia. I can go, we can give a whole class about what's unique about Australian Jewish life, but that's a, for a different day. But what's not embedded there is this idea of we the people. So when it came this challenge, people were afraid to challenge the norms of government. We should follow the law of the country, but we have the right in this country to, to protest that law, as long as we do it in a nonviolent fashion, only using speech. So that is something which is, uh, and here in America, what is government? It's a proxy for people to decide their fate as a people. And, 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 and then when it comes to, the, to a, what's his name? It comes to a Jewish government, we have a very different thing. And this is what it says in reading five. There are three crowns in Judaism, three modes of leadership. The crown of kingship, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of Torah. And what does that tell us? What does it tell us about this? It's a different style in leadership. What is it? Each position of leadership carries within it a certain amount of divine authority. The Jewish king, where does he get his power? First, it was appointed by the prophets, and he's inherited from the father. There is no election for a king. It's inherited, one after another. The high priest, the Kayan Gadol, also descendants of Aaron. And by the way, there's an amazing study done by UCLA a couple years ago. They tested the DNA of, of Kohanim, and they find they have a common marker going back over 3,000 years. So, which is a whole, another subject for another session at the retreat one time. And then, when it comes to the crown of Torah, but that can pass to anyone, and we have all kinds of people that can become great Torah scholars, but it's usually going to the greatest mind of the generation, the greatest scholars, the biggest intellectuals. And it's not a, a thing that there's a big election and somebody decides this rabbi is considered the Torah authority of the generation. It's rather by a sense of consensus and the person is selected by other members. In the time of the Sanhedrin, it was selected by other members of the Sanhedrin. So what do we see from these three modes of leadership that exist? That each one of them is, in more, has, is not in a democratic kind of fashion. It works different. 
in a sense, all of these three positions of leadership, which create, this is not the modern Israel, by the way. Modern state of Israel is a, let's say, it's an interesting conglomeration, which, you know, as I, as I once heard an Israeli politician say, you think you have democracy? I have 10 parties. You only have two. But and on the other side, and it's also an interesting mix of religion and state and whatever, it's struggling to be a democracy and also a Jewish state, et cetera, et cetera. But in the classical Jewish state, you, you, what's his name, the, kings, the levels of authority were these three, kingship, priesthood, and the crown of Torah. It wasn't the democracy like we have in modern times that we're so used to, and Baruch Hashem, democracy for us here in America has been probably the, one of the greatest gifts to the Jewish people. So what do we see over here that we have a fundamental different kind of approach to what's going on? There is, even free speech has its limitations. We know the famous statement of James Holmes that shouting fire in a crowded theater is not necessarily the right thing to do. And we also see, we also see other cases of, of free speech, like the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, the people protested, at the, and, and the religious Jews were argued against the, the dignity of a funeral. There's all different kinds of things. But in general, we have free speech. Judaism comes along and says, no, Every mitzvah is a duty. Every mitzvah is responsibility. You have to do the mitzvah. That's what's not. A, that's not. That's that's what's different. So the it's that is how we see this, the, the fundamental difference. Now we're going to take a look at three different areas of speech, torturous speech. We'll start with with you know very torturous speech, which we find certain similarities between Jewish law and American law, which is the truth is American law makes a big difference between verbal injury, injury and physical injury. Except lately on college campuses, oy vey, if you say the wrong thing, you hurt her feelings. You know, for somebody who got a profi for just showing up at every soccer game, it, didn't really, it doesn't really work so well. But nevertheless, you have to, what's his name, there is a very big difference. You can make disparaging remarks, whatever. Jewish law is similarly, also does not make a tort because of just verbal injury. So we see a similarity when it comes to torturous speech. We see that. And in other words, there's an interesting case in the Talmud. If you spit at somebody and you don't hit them, you're not, you're not liable. And, uh, and the Talmud tells us in Baba Kama that, that verbal insults, are, no matter how embarrassing, are not considered a recoverable harm. You can't sue for it. You can say things like, you're a lowlife, you're this, you're that, you know, there's great words in Yiddish for things like that. Certain words that... Uh, once when I was a, a kid, I used a cuss word in, in junior high school in Yiddish. And they gave me, in those days, they gave you a swat. I'm not going to mention the word here because I'll get in big trouble. But nevertheless, there, there was, you know, but in general, Judaism does not, there is no, it's a similarity of systems in the two. There is, um, there is it says different statements. If you're going to embarrass your fellow man, you're not going to have a portion of the world to come. This is this thing, that thing. There's one opinion that a person could be put in excommunication. He speaks abusively, but it's a minority opinion. But in general, what do we see? That there is no real damages unless you do. There's no redress unless you have physical harm. It doesn't really work. That's the way it works. And um, so there's no real. Re so American law and Jewish law does not have regress redress except if there's going to be a physical thing. So there's really not a big physical argument in this area, in the area of, what's his name? When political speech comes along, things are very, very different, and we're going to get that at the point. But there is one area where there is a punishment in Jewish law, which is, it says in, in reading number six, 
you shall not take the name of God in vain, honor your mother and father. But specifically, I want to talk about the mitzvah of kibbutah ba'em, honor your mother and father. There is one different case if a child curses the parents. Okay, and, uh, and um, in that case, a person could be liable for a death sentence. A child cursing a, ch- a parent is considered a, ter- is, is considered a terrible thing. It's considered evil, it's in, and that in Jewish law is a difference than any other area. We do not find that in, in, in American law at all. And in fact, in fact the Tal- uh, so we see this, that the United States doesn't make it a crime to curse your parents. In Judaism, we do make it a crime to curse your parents. Now, by the way, this is, has a very interesting, subtle element in the societal level, because what are we teaching children to honor their mother and father and how important that mitzvah is? And that's a mitzvah that takes a tremendous amount of time and effort and something which has become deficient. I know I go sometimes to nursing homes. My, my, my son, who's a lawyer and he's so busy, moved me from New Jersey and put me in this place and he comes and visits me every Sunday for 47 minutes. In the meanwhile, she slept a crank. She lost her friends. She lost her society. She lost her this. She's living in some nursing home in California and the quality of life is just miserable. But that is... But the point is, if you curse your parents in this area, there is a, a tremendous, uh, the Judaism takes this very seriously. The fifth, it's the fifth of the Ten Commandments, and we know the te- first ten are the mitzvahs between man and God, and the second ten are the mitzvahs between man and fellow man, and we consider this as one of the mitzvahs because honoring your parents is considered as honoring your God. So therefore, that is an area which is, has a unique kind of prohibition, and that is an area where Jewish law has on something totally different than American law. But now we're going to go on to the next, the next, next case, so to speak, which is what we call in Hebrew, which is reading number seven. And I'll read you from the Talmud in Sanhedrin. It says, if a person claims to be a prophet, this is your financial advisor, Charles Schwab, but is merely lying and telling a false prophecy, that person is liable for death. Now, what is going on over here? This is what's called in Hebrew, a Nabi Sheker, a false prophet. He comes along, or she comes along, there could be a prophetess also, and this is not the person who gives you bad stock advice and tells you to bond the right mutual fund, or, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a person who claims to have received prophecy from, from, is that Darth Vader? I don't know what it is. I had to find the right picture. What can I tell you? You know? So he comes. Listen, we got to have a little humor also in the middle. You know? Jackie Mason has passed away. We have to think in his memory. You know, a Jew who made so many Jews happy. What could be better than that? So it's, he comes along and he claims that he's speaking a prophecy in the name of God. And that is consi- and he's speaking either for another God. He's speaking for God. He says, I have a prophecy etc. There's, there's all kinds of laws in Judaism about prophecy. And we know that prophecy was, that being a prophet, especially to the end of the, at the end of the age of prophecy, which was the beginning of the Second Temple period about 2,000 years ago, is one of the foundations of Jewish leadership. The prophets came along and they gave the direction to the Jewish people. And a lot of the Jewish faith was practiced by allegiance to the prophet. The first prophet, of course, is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses. And, 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 and he is the ultimate prophet. And the prophets that come after him all throughout the Tanakh, we have all of these prophets, Yirmiyahu, Yecheskel, Mordechai, which is his leadership is recorded in the book of Esther. All of these prophets, they provided 
leadership to the Jewish people. So if somebody comes, a prophecy is considered something on the highest standard of all, and he's going to come and he's going to libel to misdirect the Jewish people, claim to be speaking in the name of God, so therefore his punishment is death. Guess what? If somebody stands in the street corner over here and says, I am a prophet, and he comes in a false prophet, nothing happens to that person in America. Nothing happens to that person in America. Doesn't happen. You can get up on the street corner, say, I am the prophet, say ever what you want, and nobody's going to do a thing for you. Nothing is going to happen to you which is terrible. Nothing's going to happen to you which is improper. You are a prophet. But if you got up and you acted as a prophet in Judaism, and you act and you speak in the name of God, you're liable for a death penalty. So somebody got up here and made a speech in a synagogue or a church or something like that, you know, or we go back to the old story, Jeremiah Wright, you know, Barack Obama's uh, guy, you can't, can't prosecute the guy, he can say whatever he wants. Anybody in America can say what we want, we, can have, we, we, can have, we have an absolute level of freedom of speech, it doesn't hold us back, and there's no limitation to what that freedom of speech is going to be, and there's no such law about a prophet. So we see a very big difference here between Jewish law and American law. But there's another case we're going to talk about, which is the case of the rebellious sage. This is where Judaism has a limitation on freedom of speech. And maybe I could ask somebody to read reading number eight. No, no, Jeff, give it to somebody else. <laughs> Now that I have the microphone, oh my. Okay. Uh, text eight. Um, Rabbi Eliezer was free to debate fiercely with the sages, but was obligated to accept their ruling insofar as he could not continue to teach his own views as the proper halacha. This is the Talmudic approach to free speech in the marketplace of ideas. When the debate rages in the marketplace, anyone may give his opinion, but only so long as the debate remains in the marketplace. Once the majority has passed judgment, their ruling has very real consequences, for example, about whether an oven may be used or must be thrown away. At that point, a scholar may not teach his opinions as law, his, his own opinion as law. If he does so, he is deemed a, quote, rebellious sage, unquote, and may be liable for death in certain circumstances. To be clear, a sage may say that in his opinion, the ruling should have gone another way, but he may not say that the majority is wrong. So this is, let me just give you the briefness of the story. I don't want to focus on the whole story, but it's a very important story. After the second temple is destroyed, Rabbi Yechen ben Zakkai sets up center of Jewish learning in Yavna, in the southern part of Israel. He's rebuilding Jewish life, and there's a debate about law and struggle. And there's a big debate between the sages and Rabbi Eliezer, and it, it's about, about the impurity of, a, of an oven. I don't want to go into the details of the case. And the, he comes, they say that the oven, if I remember correctly, is impure. He says it's pure. I don't remember if it's that one way or the reverse. And he says, I'm going to prove it's not true. He says, if I'm right, let this tree move. So the tree moves. And if I'm right, let the walls bend down. The walls bend down. If I'm right, let there be a, a voice from heaven. And a voice comes from heaven. And then the majority of sages say, but we're the vote. We have the right to make the vote. We have the authority. And they vote their way. And he is, afterwards, he decides to rebel against their vote. And he's excommunicated. In other words, this is also a crucial moment in Judaism when the, author, the idea of the central authority in, Jewish, in Judaism is being established. And if you go against the majority view of the consensus of the sages of the great Sanhedrin, then you can be declared a rebellious sage. And at that point, you can be put into excommunication. And even though, so even though Rabbi Lezer, he, he, you know, he wasn't wrong for bringing proof, bringing forth every imaginal argument. He could, do, he could say everything he wants to say. And he could afterwards say, you know what, I don't agree with the sages, but I'm following the ruling. 
He, that he could say also. But when he says, I don't agree with the sages that I'm not following the ruling, you have chaos, you have anarchy, you have a breakdown of the whole structure of Jewish law, and at that point, you have disaster. So Rabbi Lezer is put into, into excommunication. It's a very central Talmudic story about the authority of the Talmud and how Judaism is. But, in a certain way, it's limiting the element of dissent. In other words, you can have dissent, but you can't have full dissent. And there's a very big difference in how far that dissent can go. So once the sage, and really, and, and this is really actually the debate that happened here in Florida last week. You, have an attorney, you, had a, you had a district attorney in the city of Tampa that said he didn't want to fulfill some laws that were ruled here in the state of, in the state of, uh, California, in the state of uh, Florida. So the, the what's his name, the, um, the governor fired the guy. Now this guy had every right to go to the state legislature and the state senate and, lo and lobby to change the laws of the state of California, state of Florida, and have a different law. But if you're the district attorney and you don't follow what the, what the law has been done by the state, or by the, then you have, chaos, you have anarchy in this country because you don't have the right to make the law, you have to enforce the law. So in a certain sense, there's an analogy here, but it goes further in Judaism because it goes to a point of dissent not being tolerated at that point. And Rabbi Lezer gets tragically excommunicated. It's a tragic story. It's brought down. But we have to ask ourselves, why is it in the Talmud? Because everything there is for a reason, to teach us this lesson about the idea of authority, of the central authority of Jewish law, and that dissent is tolerated, but to a certain degree. And so therefore we see that idea, and it shows, it, it teaches us how important is this structure of authority. Once the majority is passed the judgment, the ruling has real consequences. You've got to follow the law. You don't have a right to just throw it out the door and, and to say, I'm not going to follow it anymore, and I'm not going to do that. So this is an important principle that we see in Jewish law, the idea of authority of the central legal system. Now, nowadays, we do not have a central legal system. Let's be very honest. Now, you can be in a community that can have a Besden, a rabbinical court, and can make rulings and say, this is what's good for our community. But today, with Jews all over the world and no, no real central system, it's a little more difficult because since the disper dispersion of the Sanhedrin around the year 350, there has been really no, there was the acceptance by all Jews of the authority of the Talmud, there was the acceptance of all Jews of the authority of the Code of Jewish Law, but there really is no central rabbinical system today that exists that all Jews accept because we have Svartim and Ashkenazim, you want to eat rice on Pesach, you want to eat this. There's, there's different communities, etc., etc. But never. But the point is, there's still an idea of, 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 of the limitation of dissent. And so once there's a halachic consensus, if you're going to say it's, you disagree with it and you follow it is one thing. If you say you disagree with it and you reject it, it's a different thing. And that's where the limitation of dissent is. And then it comes to the fourth case, which I'm going to bring to you, which is a Jewish king. We have within Judaism a very unique position, which is the king. And the king is different in the level of authority. First thing, what is a king? It doesn't mean there wasn't kings that failed in Judaism. In fact, even King Solomon, the wisest of all kings. At the end of his life, the Talmud tells us, in the end of Nida, he made a terrible mistake by marrying the princess of Egypt, which I think is referring to Cleopatra. We all are human and can make mistakes, and kings can make mistakes. When the king would walk into the room, how would the king walk in the room? With a Torah scroll next to him. Now, in Israel today, we have a modern state, we have a prime minister, we have a president, and, but he doesn't walk into the room. The president, which is like the, so like the moral voice of the country, does not walk into the room wearing, a, does not carry a Sefer Torah next to him. That's, that's the way he walks. It's not the way he walks in. And the prime minister for sure not, especially the guy who's prime minister now. 
But the idea of a Jewish king was, if the, this is what we espouse to, the king would be a righteous person who would be following the laws of Hashem, of God, and we would follow his laws, and therefore we're following God's laws. And by the way, this is the concept of a certain idea of adhering to the teachings of a tzaddik, of a righteous person. Because if it's, you have a person who's living his life really up to the teachings of Torah, and you come to him for, his, for advice or direction, and he tells you what to do, and you listen, you hopefully are getting that direction to be following the laws of Torah. So it's really, it's the ultimate allegiance to God's chosen leader. The king was appointed to a prophet, by, for, in a sense, God's appointed leader, and therefore, it's the opposite of the idea of America, where you ch we all choose the president of the United States, we all have an election every couple of years, and we choose another president. And that's what, it, and, but there's also laws about how a king should conduct himself. He has to act in a royal manner. His hair has to be styled every day. He wears fine robes. He carries, a, he carries you know, royal things with him. He goes with a Torah scroll wherever he has to go. And we have to treat the king with the same respect of a prophet and a high priest. But one of the ideas of rebellion is when you speak against the king, he has a right to take you out. In other words, the level of dissent in a monarchy in Judaism is much lower than a democracy because the king is supposed to be an embodiment of God's will in this world. Now you have kings, and we had kings, who taught adultery, idolatry, not adultery, I'm sorry, idolatry, and other things that were a rejection of classical Jewish values, you know, the kings that didn't act properly. But nevertheless, this is, and this is so different than America. Here in America, we, have, we can challenge the president. Not only that, we can challenge the symbols of the country. You're allowed to use the American flag in protest. You're allowed to do so. We even had, in the 1973, a case where a guy wore a, 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 a jacket criticizing the Vietnam War in the Los Angeles courthouse, and it was supported by the legal system. We have the right to protest. We have a right of a greater degree of dissent. But in Judaism, the respect given to the king is something we have to do because it's considered the, more, the embodiment in this world of God's moral authority. Again, we're talking about a king who's living up to those values. So we see, this, by the way, this concept for Americans, and I struggle with it also, is a very difficult concept to accept because we live in a country where we believe very heavily in dissent. And as a person who does believe strongly in free speech in the United States, I think it's very important. And I think one of the risks to democracy lately is the lack of free speech in this country, the stifling of free speech, especially at college campuses. And we see it in universities and we see it in, 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 in media where certain ideas are not going to be prevalent, are not going to be allowed to be expressed because they don't represent the right mindset of the people publishing that newspaper because they're afraid of a proper dissent. That, I think, is a very dangerous thing in this country. We have to have a variety of approaches. But flipping us around and looking about what the idea of a Jewish king who was such a different kind of moral authority, it's a very different kind of person. And so therefore, there's an obligation. He has, by the way, he has a right also to pronounce a death sentence on somebody without going through the whole process of Sanhedrin. The special laws about a king, he has extra powers that nobody else had historically within Jewish law. It's another conversation for another class. We can't go through there, but it's just, so here we see some of the differences between Jewish law and whatever. But now, what? But there is going to be a whole different kind of difference in Jewish law and modern law, which is how we talk about the idea of speech. So would you like to pass the mic and read uh, reading number nine? The Chafetz Chaim Shmira, 
Haloshan. The prohibition against speaking Lushan horror, evil speech, is the most important commandment for a Jew to keep in the face of modern culture. In all my life, it's come from Exodus 20:12. In all my life, I have found nothing wiser than silence. Perkyavas, one should not speak ahead of someone who is wiser. So here we have an attitude about speech which is very, you know, and, and you know, you walk, walk into your local supermarket, and what are you going to see sitting over there on the checkout stand? Your local, your, your, the most recent edition of People magazine, or, or many other similar publications. And what are they basically telling you? What this guy did, this celebrity, this Narishkeit, this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all a tremendous amount of what we call in Hebrew, lush and horror, which would, evil, I would, the word translation, evil speech, or bad speech, or negative speech, et cetera, et cetera. And, it, and here comes the, Rabbi Yisrael, the great Chavetz Chaim, who passed away in the early 1930s, one of the greatest rabbinical figures of the late 19th and early 20th century. And he, in his famous book, Shmir Salushan, he's telling us that the most important commandment for Jew to keep in modern culture, it's very intriguing, because look how many people today are damaged by a harsh word on Twitter. Think about how we use speech. I know that I use, I have Facebook, and I'm very, very careful what I put on Facebook because first thing, it's going to be there for a long time. And I'll tell you something that happened to me. I told this to the guy who was putting the, the, MB, our, the, the AV here. About a, a little bit after the war started in Ukraine, a, some years ago at the retreat, I had given a lecture about Jewish life in Russia. And I told, the story, I told about how the present president of Russia, whose policies in Ukraine are not something that I like at all. And by the way, Chabad has been doing a phenomenal job on the Ukraine. And I'll give another shameless plug on Thursday after, Sunday afternoon, Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock, we're doing a session on the future of Jewish life in the Ukraine, including a rabbi from the Ukraine, myself, I've been very involved with Chabad's efforts in Ukraine, and uh, Jacob Solomon is the head of the Jewish Federation here in Miami, and the Jewish Federation has done a her Herculean job in working together with us in Ukraine to save people's lives. We're going to have a real quick conversation about what's going to happen in Ukraine, because the problems are extremely serious. But... They took this video where I had, I had been to Russia a little bit before because I wrote a book called The Secret of Chabad. I went to do research in Russia. And um, I told the story how basically Putin has been very gracious and wonderful to Jews. And Jews live very good lives in Russia today, they, even till today. Right now, Jews are living very good lives in Russia till today. There's no limitation on their freedoms other than the same limitations on anybody else and the economic problems that people are suffering in Russia. I speak to rabbis in Russia almost every day. So, Somebody took this little clip, like maybe uh, two minutes, and you know, took the beginning and the end. It basically sounded like, you know, like the, the Jews run Russia, and he sent it all over the internet, some anti-Semites, and I was really a very popular person in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, and other places. Somebody told me this came from an Iranian-backed outfit. I have no idea. This went all over the world numerous, numerous times. There's nothing I can do about it. One, two, three minutes out of, a, out of a film that's on JLI's website, Torah Cafe, which brings all the, 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 the material from the retreat. And here I am, famous in the whole world, saying basically Jews run Russia. And guess what Russia's doing? They're con trying to conquer Ukraine. Little old me didn't realize that here I got in big trouble. Now, so the power of, you know, it says in the Gemara that, it, it, that you, uh, an arrow which is, which is set, shot in Jerusalem can pierce a heart in, in Damascus. In other words, when you say a word which is negative about somebody else, it can be a very counterproductive thing. So here comes the Holy Chavetz Chaim, 
And he's telling us about something very, very powerful, that we have to be careful with our words. And there's a moral lesson that we all need to learn from this. It's how we speak about other people. And, what we, and you know, there's all the people that you have friends, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about this? Or you can have other people that want to, what they want to say is they want to say good things about so-and-so and good things about this. So here becomes a very important moral teaching to us about how we need to approach the issue of speech. And, and, and this is really something of paramount importance. And now, the question is, here's a beautiful line from the Baal Shem Tov, which he says a very powerful thing. And I think that this is very important. We shouldn't be unrealistic. And maybe, listen, maybe before we go into this, let, let, me, let's go, let me read to you what it says in text number 12, and then we're going to come back to this. In text number 12, it says about the exemption for free speech. Maybe I should have put this in a little different order. One case where it needs to be done is when the information, the minimum necessary, needs to be shared only with the necessary people in order to protect someone from harm, from being scammed or physically, financially harmed. Let's say somebody calls you up and he says, so-and-so offered me a business deal. And you know the guy is totally unreliable. And you don't want your person friend scammed. Or somebody comes to you and says, I have a great idea for your, for, you know, you hear that somebody is thinking of dating somebody and you know that deep down, you know, in 1923, he was an axe murderer, or whatever you may know about the person. So you could say to yourself, I don't want to speak lush and hard. I don't want to speak bad about another person. No. If there's going to be direct harm to somebody, it's not that you put an ad in the newspaper and you put it out there, but to, to, to put it, to say it in a way which is, um, to, when you share the information to protect somebody, that is considered an important thing to do. That is considered something you have to do. And I want to say something also about speech, which I think is very important. It's about how we speak about other people. And I'll tell you a story that happened to me just two, three weeks ago. I was in Israel, and, I, and, I, and there was an issue, and a contentious issue there that was going on in the public sphere. And there was a very a friend of mine who was a liberal rabbi who wrote an article that was very critical of the Orthodox community. And I wrote an article against him that was very critical, very critical of him. And we're old friends, but we don't agree on a lot of stuff. So in that article, I put something that was a, there's a Yiddish expression, it's called a shtoch. How's how you translate that in English? I gave it to the guy. It was an underground, you know, like sticking the, uh, put the knife in and twist it. This was in the Jerusalem Post. In other words, I, I, I argued with his points intellectually, and then I stuck at him. It's a very prominent liberal rabbi. But really what I put in there was about these rabbinical students. Who is the reform rabbis to tell the Orthodox what to do when you had a hundred of your rabbinical students sign a letter against Israel in the last war? Now, when I woke up in the morning, the paper comes out. I regretted the shtuch. The, the, how, what's the right word for it in English? The, what? Stick it to you. So I go, I'm in the lobby of the hotel. We're at a conference together in Jerusalem three weeks ago. And I go over to him and I say, listen, I have to tell you two things. I said, number one, I wrote an article against you today. He says, okay. I said, but I stuck it to you and I shouldn't have done it. In retrospect, I shouldn't have done it. I should, I, everything I wrote in the piece, I fully believe in. But that, the, 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 the statement about your rabbis that went in Israel, I only put it there to stick it to you and I shouldn't have put it there. He says, I didn't read the article. I said, okay, I'm sitting in the lobby. This is the Orient Hotel in Yushalayim. And five minutes later, he comes over to me and he says to me, David, 
I don't agree with you on one end, but I still love you. No, no. What's the point of the story? We, I, we're arguing. The Rebbe once said a line, I never fight with people, I only fight with ideas. I don't argue with people, I argue with ideas. And I was very touched by this, because number one, I was very critical of him by name, because he was critical of the Orthodox, so I was critical back, but it was respectful. So we need to understand that when we do debate, and this, what happens is a lot of times our emotions take over, and that's what took over to me. The emotions took over, and when I sent it into the post, they got all excited, we're going to run it, we're going to run it, we're putting it in the paper, they're all excited because I'm sticking it to him, and he's sticking it to me, and we're living happily ever after. But you have to do something like that with a sense of dignity and always treat the person that you're writing, that you're disagreeing with, with a sense of respect and dignity. And that is a challenging thing to do. And then when we hear a bad thing about another person, comes the holy Baal Shem Tov and tells us a very powerful word. Either you don't believe it, or it bothers you so much you don't want to hear it. So it should pain you. Oh, such a thing to hear about that person? I don't want to listen to that idea. It's too hurtful to me. There's a person who wants, ah, did you hear about so-and-so? No, it hurts you. So if it's true, which is an expression it shouldn't be. Something bad shouldn't happen to another person. If it's, tr- if it, if it's true, so then you feel pain. You feel aggravation. You feel hurt. And if, it's, and if it's not true, you don't want to listen to it. And this is really when it comes to talking to other people and hearing bad things about people, I think one of the most powerful pieces of advice that I've ever heard in my life. It's how we listen. And when we set the tone, we set the tone, and we act in a certain way, guess what? People around us act differently. If we want to see the guy sitting in the back row of the shul talking about, the, about this one and that one, or, you know, this week the shul served luxion kugel, and last week it served potato kugel, and why is there not a potato kugel this week? Because it's terrible, even though I like the potato kugel. And next week, if you serve the potato kugel, they'll fetch why they didn't serve sweet kugel. Don't ask, they're going to fetch and whatever. The point is, how do we talk about another person? We shouldn't, if we don't want to either, you know, we don't believe it. Now, we shouldn't be naive. We got to know reality. Sometimes, especially, and it can be hurting another person, go tell that person. You don't want somebody to get married to somebody who's an axe murderer. You don't want somebody to go into business with somebody who steals. You don't want to get him, you want to protect the person from somebody who's bad. That you have to do and be responsible. What, what you don't have to do is always be participatory in this whole thing. And I want to finish off with a story that happened to me many years ago. Many years ago, I used to, I used to, there, was an art, there was a magazine in the Chabad world called the Yiddish Haim, which means the Jewish home. It was published for many years. It was a Jewish woman's magazine. It was a quarterly. And the, half the magazine was published in Yiddish, and the, front, the other half was published in English. And there was a, a wonderful woman called Rachel Altein, Altein, who was the editor, a very delightful, feisty woman, very interesting lady. Her father was Rabbi Yisrael Jacobson, who was the man who really brought Chabad to America. He came here in 1923, 24. He established the foundation of Chabad in America. He's the one who was the, Rebbe's, the previous Rebbe's man in America and the Rebbe's man in America. He was really the, the first major leader of, of Chabad in America. And his, his daughter, Rachel Altheim, who was sent the first time together with her husband, no, her husband was sent first before they were single. They were from the first shluchim of the previous Rebbe. They made the day school, they made the yeshiva in the Bronx. And she was a, she was a wonderful, special woman. So she asked, I, she wanted me, we wrote, decided I'm going to write an article, and I decided to write an article about the difficulties of those, of bali tshuva, people who become observant, within the Chabad community. 
It was an article that was very critical. And then in that article, this was 1975, 76, it's the mid-70s, I don't remember the exact year, I, I wrote the line, the hippie movement, you see, he's here, it's going strong. I love this guy, I love him, I love him. He, I'm, you know, I always make jokes about him, we're old buddies, it's okay. I, in, that, in that article, I wrote the line, I wrote about the hippie movement, people have become religious, the hippie movement died out. Now this magazine, Mrs. Al Rebbitzin Alltime, Mrs. Alltime, would give the English articles into the Rebbe for review, and he would do edits. And your payoff was the Rebbe's edits. Now the truth is, if I had this piece of paper with his edit, I could sell it today on eBay for $100,000. I don't got it. So he takes the word died, and he, knocked, he puts a line through it, and he puts the word waned. What is this telling us? There's a Gemara, the Talmud tells us, that a person should always speak Belushan and Nikia in a refined fashion. So you don't say a person died, you say a person passed away. You don't say a person, you don't say a person is dead, you say he's not living. You don't, and he, tell, he takes the, and this is the hippie movement. We're not talking about some tzaddik that passed away. We're not talking about, we're talking about hippies, Allen Ginsberg and all these other guys, whoever, you know, I don't remember all the names. Of all the hippie movement, some of you guys may remember who they were, maybe some of you were part of the hippie movement, I don't know. These were revolutionaries. By the way, the Rebbe said at the time that these were great people. Why? Because they were willing to establish the, they were willing to challenge the established order in America. He was the only Jewish leader that looked at them and found something good to say. They were willing to challenge the established order in America. So the hippie movement died out, waned. And that taught me a powerful lesson that I always thought in my life, that whenever you write a word, and I guess that's why I went over to my friend, the Reformed Rabbi, and told him I stuck it to him and, and I regretted it is that you always have to use refined terms. You always have to speak in a refined fashion. You always have to act with a sense of dignity. You don't write the hippie movement died out, it waned, it, it became weaker. And if we use that kind of language and we speak in that kind of dignity, then what's going to happen is the people that we're interacting with and talking to are gonna act differently because it's kamayim upon him, upon him, like the Talmud says. It, what we feel comes out of our hearts is reflected in them. What comes from us reflects in another person. So when we act in a refined fashion, which is not always easy because we can get excited and we can get angry and people can get disagreement with their spouse or with their kids or with their, you don't have disagreements with grandchildren, by the way. They're a lot more fun than their children. So now that I have the ch grandchildren, I don't even wanna to talk to the kids, but nevertheless, I would, I would have skipped the kids and gone straight to the grandchildren. But nevertheless, seriously speaking, this is the idea about how we should act with speech. So Jewish law and American law have a very different approach. Jewish law, American law, gives us the right for speech, and we as Americans have to be watched very carefully, I believe, to protect that right. Jewish law puts certain restrictions on it because we see that areas of dissent that can uproot Torah or be, be de de uh, negative to other people or be hurtful and malicious could be a bad thing to have, or especially when so a child speaks badly about the parent. So we see a divergence between these two different legal systems, and if we try to, we, we are, thank God, blessed to live in a country where we have, Baruch Hashem, tremendous freedom of speech and Bill of Rights, and I think it's something we have to greatly treasure and protect as Americans, at the same time, I think the Torah gives us direction and guidance about how we should word words because human beings are described in Kabbalah as being a medaber, a communicator, and realize that's really the most unique quality about people. So when we speak to each other, it should always be with a sense of dignity and with respect. And when we act with respect to others, they're going to treat us with dignity and respect in return. Thank you very, very much.
Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.